One realizes very quickly we've been seeing this technology for decades. I had access to, to all those programs. Surfaces, no obvious signs of propulsion, and yet this object is witnessed now by four separate individuals in two separate aircraft. Hey guys, welcome back to uh, another live interview here on the Disclosure Team YouTube channel. Um, but quickly before I bring on my guest, I just want to say, please keep the chat nice and polite. Um, it's okay to have differences of opinion, but just, you know, keep it cool. If you do have any questions, uh, please pop them in capital letters, but I cannot guarantee I will get to ask them all because we've got quite a lot of notes and things to go through here with John. So let's jump straight into it, guys. Again, thank you for being here. So John Burroughs is a native of Illinois, entered the U.S. Air Force in 1979 and served for over 26 years. He was assigned to RAF Bentwaters in June of 1979 as a base policeman. In December 1980, John and others witnessed unusual lights in Rendlesham Forest. Guys, please welcome John Burroughs. John, how are you? Good. How are you tonight? I'm really good. Thank you again for doing this. Good. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me on. So, John, I know Rendlesham's obviously a huge case, a huge story that a lot of people are aware of. But if it's OK with you, I'd like you to sort of just talk us through the the event uh, in the, over those three nights in 1980 from your perspective um, and who was where and when. And then that just so we can sort of piece it together. Sure. Um, one of the things I want to give a little bit of access to is that before I go into the three nights that you want to talk about is there have been stuff seen prior to these three nights, different things that have gone on around the base in December, maybe even earlier than that. And even a, a year before, somebody had an interesting sighting at the end of the runway. And then after our event, there was other things that took place um, over the next series of weeks. So this wasn't like just a three-night event, which is kind of rare in the first place. You usually don't see things go on, but you have a a short maybe encounter or sighting or something and that's it it never happens again for us the, the people that were involved it was a three-night you know i call it fiasco so <laughs> it started um we came on duty on our last midnight shift which would have been christmas night because if you if you go back and you want to research this the halt memo that got released to the news of the world was wrong it was right. um I've never been able to narrow him down totally on why he did it, but there's speculation. But he said in interviews over the years that he wrote it off our statements, blotters, and everything else. It was interesting enough, the blotters disappeared shortly afterwards. They were classified. And then years later, he, um, he, he released our statements, and it verified that it happened at 0300 on the 26th of December. We were, uh, I was on duty on patrol with my supervisor, just been newly assigned to the base. It was a dead night at Woodbridge. So he wanted to ride around for an hour or two together just to talk about stuff. And there was another caveat that never came out until now when uh, 
an individual that worked inside OSI openly stated that they, OSI was running a drug bus sting up at the dorms up by the main gate. And they wanted us also completely out of that area where they didn't want to see any patrol car, any law enforcement activity. So we were staying away from that whole area. We were down by the flight line in that area. So we were out driving around. And as we went down the uh, flatland road towards the east gate, there was, uh, he saw, my supervisor saw it at first, he saw some strange lights. It looked like, he said, what he said as he got my attention was, he saw them above the tree line going into the tree line. So he got my attention to look at it. I looked at it and, he, and I'd been there a year and a half and I'd been down at that gate at night before even station when it was open. And he said, have you seen anything like that in the forest? And I go, no. So we opened up the gate drove down to the road where there was a T where you could go left towards Bentwaters or right. I forget the village. There was a British village to the right. And he kind of did a U-turn in the middle of the road. Um, and I opened the door so I could get out. I looked into the forest. As soon as I opened the door, it didn't feel right. It was like an electricity in the air, stagnant. I wouldn't say it felt totally like slow motion, but it just felt like your body wasn't acting, feeling right. So we both kind of got spooked and we were off base. <laughs> we were off base and nobody knew we were there because we decided to take a closer look before we even let anybody know. Because probably once we called in something like that, it was going to cause a problem. And it, it did. So we went, went back up to the gate, called on the, the direct line so it wouldn't go over the frequencies. It was Christmas night, early Boxing Day morning. Uh, they were. It was mostly, it was very relaxed for the type of bass we had. They even had one of the channels playing Christmas music, <laughs> kind of to keep people, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's a bummer when you're stationed overseas from your family if you don't have yeah. them there with you, married and stuff. So I called on the phone and tried to explain to the, the law enforcement desk sergeant who I was friends with, but I played practical jokes on what we were seeing. He didn't want to have nothing to do with it. He figured we were yanking his chain. So my supervisor tried to convince him, and he wouldn't accept it. So he transferred us from the desk to the CSC, who he then, my supervisor explained to him what was going on, and he sent down the security supervisor for Woodbridge, which was Sergeant Penniston. And he came down to the gate and saw the same strange things in the woods. It was lit up. It was like, it, at one point, it looked like there was a bright white light that was in the forest that might have been even coming towards the road down towards the road from where we were at and there was different colored lights in it i've said over the years it looked like almost like a christmas light display like blue red green and um so penniston confirmed it and then there was a discussion and this is all secondhand when we were secondhand i wasn't on the phone but this is what relayed to us and even there was a brief radio transmission at one point the, they they made some phone calls. They called RAPCON, which was our radar system. They called um, Eastern Radar, which was the radar system that was in charge of the entire UK air defense. Yeah. And somehow Heathrow Tower got involved. I don't know. But the, the, um, the whole overall thing was they spotted something that was on radar above the forest in that area that disappeared off the radar. So people always question why we went off base. And that's always been kind of tried to be pushed under the rug by our shift commander who did talk one time. He, I don't know who he talked to behind the scenes in our chain of command, but after the radar confirmation, we were seeing strange lights in the woods. 
he authorized us to go up base to investigate. The British were, authorities were notified, the British police and the fire department. Now, there's been stories that I've read that I don't have a handle. Even the fire department, the British fire department did come out to the area at one point while we were out there. But so we went down. There was three of us that went. Uh, Penniston Kabansak, who was his rider. And believe it or not, it was his first night on duty. Wow. And he actually <laughs> thought maybe there was a practical joke going on himself because we always used to, they always used to screw with the newbies. And, and, and then Stephens didn't want to go, number one. He didn't like the feeling of any of it. But two, one of the two sergeants had to stay behind anyway because you had to leave somebody in charge, at least till the cavalry came, which eventually more people showed up. So the three of us went off into the woods, and we went down a service road, a forest road. Um, the lights seemed to get closer. Uh, we got to a point where we couldn't go in the vehicle anymore. And we had to get out and go on foot. It did play like cat and mouse with us a little bit. At one point, it was like maybe we thought it was one pot spot, and then all of a sudden, maybe it was behind us. Wow. But eventually, when we got close to it, and this is where all this lighthouse stuff comes up, which always gets played up into. But I will tell you, the lighthouse was involved. Through research, we found out it was. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But we had some kind of interaction when we were coming up to it. There was like a berm. As we came up to the top of the berm, all of a sudden there was these lights that were there. And it got really bright white. And then we hit the ground. And basically, all I remember at that point, from that point on, me personally, and Kabansak has done an interview for James Fox at one point. Yeah. He stated that when we got close to it, he drew his weapon. I drew my weapon. I don't remember. I, I thought I left my weapon up at the gate, but he. His memory was I had my weapon and I drew it, and then we all blacked out. Now, by all he said he did, which I don't remember anything from that point, but Pennison has a completely different story yeah. from that point on. But basically then all of a sudden what I remember seeing is it kind of dimmed, lifted up, something lifted up through the forest and shot off to the coast. At that point, I remember getting up with Kabansak, and Penniston, and we went forward, crossed the, the fence that went into the farmer's field, and went out into the two different fields heading towards the coast, where I actually remember Penniston split off from us for a little bit, went to the left, and we went straight, and I remember getting out by the coast where we could see a lighthouse. Now, in our statements, Ed and I wrote that we could see a beacon at one point, but we saw the beacon after the initial interaction sure and we didn't see the lighthouse beacon till we got down by the road from the one farmer's field crossing it by these cottages were down there and contrary to some people's speculation i'd been there but i wasn't really from the gate you couldn't see the lighthouse period and i'd never been out in the forest like that before so i really you you'd heard there's a lighthouse out there but i'd never seen it before that night right and Ed had just gotten there, so he didn't know. So I can only say Ed and I, what we did, we saw a beacon, but we clearly identified it when we got to this ledge looking down as the beacon. But along the way, we also saw some other strange lights, first by the cottages at the end of the um, the first field, and then farther out, we saw a brief streak of light um, up in the sky. So 
So that was the first night. And we came back to the base. Uh, there was people there. They asked us, you know, kind of what happened. I I did I was fortunate in some ways. I didn't have to say much. I wasn't in charge. I just kind of kept my mouth shut. So that was the first night. Um, the second night, I wasn't involved, but the uh, shift commander and the on-duty security flight chief, this was the new flight. We went on break Saturday morning um, or Friday morning, I'm sorry. Friday night, the shift commander and the security flight chief had an interaction. And it actually, one of the blue lights shut the shift commander's Jeep off, shut it down. She got relieved of duty. And from what I understand, I don't remember what happened to her afterwards, but Halda said that she she was removed from the base right afterwards. She left and she had just gotten there. And she actually should have been on duty night three, which was the famous night with Halt being out there with the team in the forest you know, the tape was made. Yep. I met up with his team. I actually found out about night two in the morning of the third day before the third night happened. When I, go, I was up on the base and I went to the dorm because I lived off base and talked to a couple of guys I was with that were involved with me. Not They weren't out there when it happened, but they were around afterwards and with the first night. So we decided to go out there on our own just to go out in the forest to sit down and figure out what was going on when we got out there there was already all kinds of stuff going on they had they had people out in the forest they had light all set up in the staging area halt was out front of the the light alls with that team that's where the tape was made he yeah. alleges that was where he would made the tape was where we had our first encounter you know okay. i don't know i wasn't there when he was recording it and eventually i got before i met with him and it's i didn't hear he didn't talk about it on the radio but on the tape, he says there was a beam of light coming at his feet, and then it shot off towards the base. Well, right, I think right in there, because if you coordinate right before we met up with them when they were starting to come back, they actually, a beam of blue light shot through the trees in front of us where the staging area was, swooped down through the staging area and lit up the light alls that hadn't been working. Wow. And then uh, they went through the truck that were one of the guys that came out with me, you know, that we came out together and he jumped in the truck and it went through the truck, shot up into the sky and disappeared. So then um, I went forward and all this can be verified on the halt tape. You'll hear that they'll say Airman Burroughs and two other personnel were out and want to come to your location. Sard Ball comes on and says that at this time, we'll let them know when they can come out. Now, over the years, halt at first started to deny that Bastinza and I were never involved. Then once, the um the the tape got cleaned up and released. Bastins is all over the tape, and then my name's mentioned. Then he tried to deny that Bastins and I went in front of him, but we came up with evidence to support we were with the interview he did, and he slipped up and said we were. So then he's openly in his book admitted that Bastins and I, once I met up with the party, there were some strange lights that were out in front of us that came down into the that part of the forest from the field we were standing in, and he let Adrian and I go forward. Right. And we we took off, started going towards it. It seemed to be coming towards us. The um, I was in. We had one radio, and as it was getting closer to us, we asked for permission to go right up on top of it. And the 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 whiskey tower gave us permission, and we, we started running. As we were running, Bastenza went down to the ground, and I seemed to be getting really close to it. And then the next thing I know. 
I'm standing there and it's gone. And I turn back and look and Bastenza is starting to stand back up. Now, in our book, Weaponization of a UAP, Adrian wrote what he saw happen. And what he said happened was I went into it and disappeared. And it actually, part of it came over him and touched part of his body, his hand, his arm. And um, then I reappeared. So that's the essence of the first three nights, the three nights that I was involved in. No, I appreciate that. Thank you for sort of clearing that up because it's so blurry out there when you read different things online. It's, I find it a very difficult case to kind of research and piece together. So I, I do appreciate that. And, and what I'd like to come back to is the the lighthouse, but not specifically the lighthouse, but where it is, Orford Ness. Right. And I'd like to sort of talk about what's, what was going on at Orford Ness and had been for decades before, um, Cobra Mist and Radar, things like that. So if you could kind well, of... Well, they actually, if you, if you look at the history, which is in our book, they actually, Radar was developed off the death ray. And yeah. that's the death rays of lasers. And they were working on lasers that... Um, that that's how they discovered radar. So they were working on that. They also did nuclear stuff down there. And I, I don't have it in front of me, so I don't want to screw it up so somebody could say he's wrong about something. But they were also <laughs> doing some kind of nuclear work down there. I forget what it was, some testing and stuff. So, but when I brought up the lighthouse, what was interesting was the black tower, which we talk about in the book, is was the original radar that they yeah. developed. And they actually still was operational and they had taken cables and ran it to the lighthouse and they were using the lighthouse as an EM frequency um, blasting the forest with EM frequencies during our event. So that involves some of the technology they work on. Never mind you have Martels from Heath that during that very same time, which again, people like people will hear an explanation and somebody will say, well, SDI didn't start till Reagan. No, that's not true. SDI was being developed in the 70s, worked yeah. on maybe even earlier than that. And after MKUltra happened in the States and all that stuff with the CIA and the mind control and all that that was going on, all that stuff was being shut down by Carter and it got moved over to an NSAP program over to the UK where they were working. Marlstrom Heath at the time was a joint Air Force British facility. And Marconi was on the British side working with the Americans and they were actually working on SDI. And if you go deep into this, several of the scientists that were there during our time frame later on mysteriously committed suicide. That were working on drones, the EM frequencies and stuff like that. And they mysteriously committed suicide. And speculation was the Soviets knocked them off because we, they were the Americans... And the British were getting catching up and going ahead of the Soviets, who at the time actually had an advancement. When this all started, they figured out the Soviets have been working on plasmas and this kind of stuff, and they were way ahead of us. And then when we were catching up, if not maybe moving ahead of them. So yeah. all this was going on with Arya Bowsey and their radar systems. It's all described in the book, um, and and Marlson Heath and what they were working on. Never mind, there was a scientist down there working with a university that they had identified an energy phenomenon, which goes back to what you asked about Cobra Mist, which gets misconstrued. Cobra Mist had been shut down by that time, yeah. but it got shut down because of an inland anomaly that was interfering with the system. It's right in the write-up of it in the documents. And they brought in a team from SRI, which is Stanford Research Institute, 
to figure out what was going on because and they actually identified the anomaly and eventually they shut down the, the radar and it may have been too because they had better systems developed by then too but you don't spend that kind of money in at least operation they couldn't make it work right so yeah. but the SRI team stayed and they stayed at Martelson Heath and at Bentwaters so they were all there most likely working on this including the phenomenon itself whatever the anomaly was yeah, so just so I got it right, so the inland anomaly is pretty much what we're saying the phenomenon is. Well, that's, that's what that. the, if you looked at the Condon report, the guy that wrote it said some of us were exposed to UAP radiation. Well, they identified, he never identified what a UAP was other than sure. an unidentified aerial phenomenon, but he identified we were exposed to UAP radiation. So therefore, yes, you could probably say that the British were looking at it as a UAP back then, and even when he wrote the report, because he would have had to look at documents from back then to correlate this with UAP radiation and all the other stuff he was working on for the report. But the Americans didn't really change it from UFOs to UAPs, you know, until Hillary Clinton started making it more famous, you know, along with To the Stars. But interestingly enough, I did some FOIA with the MOD, and they actually admitted they'd held back a bunch of files. And when I got some of it, they looked like the MOD started calling it UAPs, I believe, in 2000. Yeah. They actually identified it. And then the report, I believe, was, and I'm just saying this off the cuff, so I don't may have the dates kind of wrong. I think the report was written in six, and then David Clark got it released because he found in this before he did identify something about a report that he actually did a FOIA on and they admitted they had the report, but a lot of it was redacted still. So a lot of the report was still classified even after they released what they did on classified about UAPs, this, and it says in Condine, there's, there's an energy force that's out there. It's intelligent control. It's able to do different things. And the engineer that wrote it leaves it with, we need to weaponize it. Yeah. Now it was 2000. The Condine was first published prior, you know, classified version david didn't find it till 2006 you're right and one thing that we've been trying to do recently is trying to FOIA for the unclassified version which we have been told multiple times has been destroyed they've not got yeah. a copy the, the, crazy you no know, interesting that you bring that up i don't know if you remember this but when they were releasing their files the time from rendlesham going forward i forget how many years was all gone and they came back and said oh it was accidentally destroyed Mm. They that, that that was the thing Clark even wrote about it. It actually came out and said that the files that would have had to do with Rendlesham had been destroyed. So it seems like a lot of stuff with Rendlesham is supposedly been destroyed. And it went against their protocol, which they had to say why it was destroyed and identify who did it. And there's no record anywhere of what happened with it. So basically, what they're telling you is it's still classified. But if yeah. they tell you that. That draws more attention than they just tell you, oops, we accidentally destroyed it. Yeah. Because they absolutely. didn't admit that it was still classified. They just told you it's just no longer available. Yeah, you're right. And we've got appeals ongoing, but it seems like we're just not going to get anywhere with that. But I mean, let's stick with Condyme because, and if it's okay with you, talk about your medical effects. Um, because there's a correlation between the, the lists, you know. Uh, Professor Simon Holland covered it in, in a recent interview he did with you. That so, let's jump to how how long after the, your 
the first night, did you start feeling strange effects? Okay, uh, well, I want to go into a little bit about the professor. I, sure. I, I appreciate what he's doing, okay? But he's not sourcing where he's getting most of his information from. Right. Most of his information is coming out of the book we wrote and through the research of Wynn Keach and James Warrow, you yeah. know, and he's, he's drawing a lot of that out of the book and he's never, he uses the word source, but the source is the book. And okay. as, what he's doing with it is giving you a brief outlay. If you really want a lot of the details off his videos, which I'm fine with is go to the book. But here's the kicker though. He upset me when he said you heard it from him first. <laughs> which is not true. This a lot of this stuff was found out by James Worrell and Wink Keach already knew about because he had actually worked, he actually had been a pilot in the RAF and he actually worked for the MOD. He actually is one of the few people that holds a dual engineering degree, which was only one time offered, and it was so complicated and hard to pass, hardly anybody did. So they've actually split it up. So he owns a, a degree that most people don't even own. And he did a full analysis of the area, the equipment, what it would all mean. So going forward with your question on Condine, okay. Right after the event, I didn't feel good. And went to the hospital, the clinic, you know, I felt felt crappy. And they just kind of blowed it off as you got the flu or cold or something. They didn't really know. And at the time, I finally started feeling better. But the thing that happened to me before the heart problem was discovered, after I PCS back to the States was my gums turned white at one point. We're bleeding wow. a little bit. And then going forward from there, I came back to the States after my two years. And that's always been misconstrued. I did get reassigned somewhere at one point because of Rendlesham, but I didn't get yanked out of Rendlesham early. I got yanked to put somewhere. I got put over in Asia and Korea after the news of the world story broke. They wanted to wow. hide me over there. They had me hidden over there in Korea with Hall. Halt was the base commander at Kunsan. I was at Osan, and Williams is the PACAF commander. So they stashed us in a spot where none of the three of us could be talked to. Because mm -hmm. CNN wanted to come over and talk to us, and they weren't allowed again afterwards. So anyway, I didn't feel good. When I came back to the States, I was home. I only lived about two hours away. So every about once a month, I'd come home just to see the family, hang out for the weekend with my friends. I came home on a Saturday after I worked. I worked Friday night and I got back and I woke up Saturday afternoon, early evening, really sick. I knew I was sick enough. It was going to be more than a few hours. It was going to be there. So had to go back the next day. So I called the base and said, I'm not really not going to be able to come back. So we'll go to the emergency room. So I went to the emergency room and when they verified I was sick, the doctor started listening to my heart and he says, what's the Air Force say about your heart murmur? And I'm like, what heart murmur? I don't have a heart murmur. He goes, oh, yeah, you do. You've got a really distinguished, distinct one. You can hear it. He brought the whole emergency room nurses, all that, in to listen to it. So there's been people that speculated, well, they missed it when I came in the Air Force. Well, number one, I couldn't have come in the Air Force if they identified it. Number two, they wouldn't have missed it because this guy picked it up within a matter of listening, just putting it on my, my chest, right. and it was that loud and distinctive. And the, the fact is, is that it wasn't there when I came in. And I've got an entry physical to prove that. That was part of my settlement. So I wasn't sick with it before. Then magically I had this heart issue, you know, afterwards. So what I did know at the time was I went back to the base and I came in. Um, I think it was Monday I went back 
And I checked in. I took my records to the hospital. They verified the ER was involved. Tuesday, I had to go see a doctor that came in from Ray Patterson. And he did an examination on me, and he immediately told me that he was issuing orders for me to go to Ray Patterson the next day to have a full bank of tests done. And, and, and he said, pack to stay for a while. You may not be coming back for a while. Wow. And he wouldn't elaborate anymore. So I went up there the next day. And they did echoes and a bunch of other tests, blood work and everything else. And that was in the morning. And then I went to lunch and I came back in the afternoon and he came back in. He says, well, the good news is I thought you had the thickening of the left heart wall. We were going to have to do surgery on you. He goes, so you don't. He says, but you have a valve issue with your heart that we don't know what caused it. And he said, we're going to have to monitor it, you know, and... So that was that. And I didn't know at the time, right? Patterson is where they look at all this exotic technology and everything that might have happened. But you find that out years later. Went back to my base. Everything was fine. A couple of years later, I started having eye problems at Arizona. So I went in to see the eye doctor, sent me to Wolford Hall to a specialist. I can't remember what exactly he was, but he wasn't just a regular eye doctor. He was a colonel high up in that thing. And the first thing he did when he looked at my eyes was, have you been exposed to radiation before? And at the time, I didn't put Bentwaters as radiation-based. Sure. I just said, not that I'm aware of. He says, well, you have. What I found out later was I have a hole in the back of my eye wall. Something damaged my eye wall. It's a hole. It's not a tear. It's a hole. So anyway, they sent me to um, him. He actually said with what I had, I shouldn't go to Korea. I had orders by then to Korea and he tried to cancel them and they wouldn't let him. He said they had to work. He had to do the best he could to figure out what it was, what the treatment would be. And for me to be deal with the flight surgeon on my issues with my heart and my eyes when I got over there. And it, you should have seen the flight surgeons looking at me. I walked in there with my records. Cause when you get to Korea, you have to check in right away because it's a war zone, it's still considered a combat zone. It's just in the, you know, it's not a peace treaty it was ever signed. It's a truce. So I had to go in there and I had to go over to the hospital and they said, well, let's have your records. I go, here's the note. I got to see the flight surgeon. So I went in and he looked at all my stuff. He says, I can't treat you for this. He goes, what are you here for? I said, I don't really know, doc, other than they said. He actually, the colonel was told back at Wolford Hall that I was going to Korea. There was no withdrawing the orders. I was going to go to Korea. So, and I missed the other part of the story, which I'll do real quick. When News of the World broke the story, all these people started looking into it. and started, I got calls from everywhere. Don't know how they found my phone number because I wasn't even in the phone book by my name. I was had a roommate that was in his name, but they found me. But the guy that found me was Chuck DeCaro. CNN called me. I had to tell the base about it. Long story short, I had to... Um, go to public affairs on that one. Next thing I know, the next day I'm in um, on the battle in the battle staff area on the secure line talking to the Pentagon about how I was supposed to handle the interview with Takaro. They wanted me to do it because the cat was out of the bag with the memo being out and something yeah. happened. So they didn't want to look like it was being totally covered up, but they didn't want me to go into any detail other than to stick to the memo, which was wrong anyway. So that was part of it. So then going forward, but my orders, when I got him, I had a friend in outbound that tried to get me out of him. He ended up in front of his uh, commander being threatened with an Article 15 for interfering with my orders. And 
the thing was is that he looked at the commander and he said, why am I in here? We've done this before. He doesn't want him, doesn't want them. And he was just looking in, inquiring into how he could possibly get out of them. And he says, this is so above, he said he told me this was so above his pay grade that he crossed the line with me. So not only that, but the doctor couldn't keep me out of Korea, which I found out later why, which I told you earlier. So, you know, so yeah, there was all kinds of issues early on with my health, which later on led to my rec medical records being classified, which I can go into a little bit if after down the road a little bit as you go along with this. Yeah, so I mean, at that point, I mean, well, so go forward a bit further, and this may fit in with what you just said, but am I right in saying Kit Green got involved and maybe even Colin Kelleher and possibly Robert Bigelow? So, you know, they're wanting your DNA and, and things well, like that. Yeah, this. if you wanted me to go down this line. Okay. All right. So it started with when I got sick in 10, early 11. It was actually early 11. My heart was acting up like it never had before. And the doctor... When I went in, they found it at uh, urgent care that I was an AFib, sent me to the hospital. They eventually uh, shocked my heart back in the rhythm and I had some congestive heart failure. But the doctor said, how long have you had this? And I said, well, this is the first time I've had an issue like this, but I've had the heart murmur since 1980. He goes, where are your records with that? I said, well, I was injured in, in the Air Force. He goes, did they do any tests and stuff? I said, well, yeah, in 81. He said, I need you to request the records. And he wrote up a request through the military. I need to look at these to better understand what's going on. Because he said, what you're going through doesn't fit the symptoms normally of what you would have. The damage just didn't add. The symptoms were worse than the damage appeared to him. So I requested them and didn't get a response. Went to my first senator. He requested them. Got told my records were where were, they weren't where they were, usually would be. The aide, and most people, the senators don't do the work the aides do. They just mm. use the power of the office. So she figured out really fast that my records were classified. So she wrote me a letter saying they were, and she said I had to go file for disability to force them to look at my records and admit what's in my records, what's wrong. So we went ahead and I went and filed a disability and came back, gave her all the information. He was getting ready to retire. His term was coming up and he was going to retire. They got nowhere from that point on all the way till the elections were over and he retired. So what he did was, she said, you can give it to the, it was a Republican that got elected. I forget his name now. And she was going to work with him. Or I recommend you give it to Senator McCain's office. You know, he's, he's farther up the chain, especially with this new senator. And so went to McCain. He got me in to at least get a physical. When I went in to be looked at, to evaluate whether I was disabled from in the line of duty, the doctor starts to ask me questions. They start identifying what happened. And I saw an eye doctor too. I'll go into that in a second. But she said, well, interesting, everything you're applying, you weren't in the Air Force when you when you said that's when you were injured. And that was the first time I found out that they were actually trying to cover up. I was not in the Air Force until 1982. So I looked right. at her and I says, well, I've got, I pulled out a pay record. I said, you see, I was being paid and 79 i came in and she goes looks at it looks at me and says i, I can only go with what i've got here in front of me i'll write it up as such and we'll take it from there so i saw an eye doctor and now that's when i first saw i think i saw my records again because there was this envelope a vanilla envelope with records that were huge and i'm pretty sure he had those but he was a specialist that came out of um the dod 
He looked at my eyes and he came back and he says, nothing's changed since 1980. He says, we'll continue to monitor it. I go, what? I go, that's all you need to know. Get out of here. So then in the summer, I got denied, which, you know, I've got all the paperwork. I've actually shown it in um, presentations. I got denied my disability because I wasn't in the Air Force in 1979. So they initially denied that. So we were able to finagle through and eventually prove with, there's a lot of stuff that went on behind the scenes to get it proved that was in 79. Because even AFRPC denied I was in, even though they showed that I was in. But I found out by going through retirements, because I technically couldn't have been retired if I hadn't had those three years. So anyway, yeah, yeah. So anyway, we got that changed, and then they made an offer to um, to settle everything based on the new DD form two fourteen. That somehow that got pulled, and and, and they said that because I, I had to drop the initial appeal, which when I did that, the there's an agency the state looks at it, and he could see they denied our FOIAs, hadn't given the proper documentation, they were covering all that up. So then we we put the uh, denial in or the withdrawal and just on new information, I got a letter after that saying, thank you for thank you for um, canceling your appeal. Your case is now closed. So that's when it got really ugly because McCain personally got involved. He actually threatened to hold hearings and the DOJ got involved in a bunch of stuff went on. I eventually got my settlement. Now, during all this time frame, we testified in front of the citizens hearing, the lawyer, Pat Presconia, who was working with me. And at the time, that very moment, Penniston was involved and so was I. And um, we went up there and testified, you know, in front of a mock hearing. Yeah. And about, I don't know, several days later, Kit Green calls him and wants to meet with him. So he comes in, meets with Pat in Jackson, Mississippi, talks to him about a bunch of stuff and wants to evaluate me personally do an evaluation and talk to me about some stuff. So eventually he flew out. I was in Sedona at the time, flew out to Sedona, brought Pat and his wife, who's also an attorney and a nurse, brought us, brought us all together in Sedona and um, did an examination and came back and said, well, you definitely have problems that don't look very good. He didn't explain it to me like he did Pat behind the scenes. He said, I didn't have any much longer to live is what he told Pat. Wow. So, he said, what I would like to do is I would like to get a sample of your DNA. We're doing a study of 100 people that are, are known to be exposed to UAPs. And I said, 100 people? He says, he said to me, he says, well, you're one of the few cases that ever got leaked out. So there's a lot of other stuff that's gone on where we've got confirmed military activity with UAPs. And we're studying their DNA on the effects or whatever. I said, all right. I said, and, and he says, and we want to do an MRI of your brain. He says, we want to look at the brain and see what's going on with it. And there was just a loose imply that they wanted to see if the brain of mine was a lot like some of the other guys, which meant that we were getting having this contact more because of that over or was it we damaged later? Well, couldn't do the MRI because I have a pacemaker because right. some of the stuff they did before they finally figured out, which I'll tell you in a minute, they figured out what was going on and why, was they didn't need to do that. So they really couldn't do the MRI. It was an MRI that they could, but they just couldn't justify it medically to go in on a on a theory. It had to have been a serious medical issue. Um, the DNA, I told him no. But he didn't listen, and when he left Sedona, he actually, they flew 
Gary Nolan in from San Francisco that next morning into Vegas and him and Colin Kelleher drove down and met with us in Flagstaff that afternoon. And they tried to get my DNA and I told them, no, I said, I'm not playing. I said, I'm sick. I can't get anywhere at the VA. I can't get any kind of treatment. I said, this is off limits until something gets done. They were mad. Kit Green was mad, but Pat told Kit, we told you no yesterday. He goes, but you tried, but you know, so then he turned back around and he wrote a, a letter that ended up being classified after the fact that he gave to Pat for me to give to the, to the VA and the Department of the, which ended up with the Department of Defense also. And as soon as that came in to play, because McCain now, I was at least being seen by the VA. All of a sudden, the DOD showed up, VA doctors, and they immediately, within about three months, I got the surgery I needed because they figured out what was damaged in my valve that wasn't normal. But what is explained to me was you have two leaflets in your valve. The inside leaflets never damaged. The outside one showed some damage, but not enough damage to create the issues I was having. But the inside one was shredded. Now, what they told me, and I have the records to prove it, is I actually had two leaflets on the inside part. And when I was injured, I would have probably died if I hadn't had that medical condition, which is rare. So the two of them were both damaged, but they weren't damaged enough together to kill me on the spot. So that all got done. I was handled by a DOD doctor the whole time. They took my blood. They took all my tissue, which I found out later was studied, okay, for all of this stuff. And it was done in the study that they wanted, but the DOD was running this one, not. Well, they were actually, their contract was through the DOD anyway. But I found out that they got all that stuff anyway. So they got it through the surgery. So that's how Kent Green showed up and Keller, her, and Nolan. And then we dealt with him all the way through because at one point we were actually getting ready to file a lawsuit during all this stuff going on to force the government to admit why my, my number one, we couldn't even get a FOIA answer because we identified the classic, the classified records section, which they have, but we couldn't even get to admit my records were there and why they refused to answer that FOIA. They broke the law on that. They refused to deal with the Senator's office on any of that also. And stuff. And then, so after I got my surgery, I just got a, a, a letter. Um, my, my surgery was in 13. I got the settlement in 15 when we got all this taken care of. And I got a letter from them saying, We're taking responsibility for your injuries because my settlement, which people want to argue about, which I have all the documentation, which I gave to Billy Cox as a journalist who wrote an article on it, he verified that my settlement was based off of being injured in the line of duty during the event now what what they and part of the part of the documents presented were condite documents the classified documents some other stuff but what they didn't say was what what it was and i got told that by different i got told by by kyle staffer you were injured but you're never going to know mccain's people said the same thing no doubt you were injured but you're never going to get an answer why and when they finally settled with me we're taking responsibility for you but we're not going to tell you why or what's going on and not only that, but my medical records are still classified. So are my personnel files having to do with Rendlesham. And um, I have to see certain doctors inside the DOD for my heart, my eyes, because I can't even, like, the VA allows you to do community and care. And where I live, there's not a lot. that You have to drive to Indianapolis. 
Um, right. I can't be treated by a civilian doctor. They tried once, but they wouldn't give them any information. So they had to kick me back for the VA. In fact, now I have to go to Indianapolis and deal with the chief of cardiology on my heart. So, I mean, I, I can see that it's great that you finally got there, even though it took way too long to get, you know, the VA and all that sorted out. But Well, I mean, actually, I didn't really, because from the time I, I never correlated all this totally. Oh, yeah. I, I knew that I got sick, but I never really did all the, the, the correlation with the weapon systems, the, the, the radiation, all that, until I started getting sick and I started researching some of this stuff sure, and working right. with other people. Then Green showed up because what he said, and he did this on the Buff Top Secret, because that's when I knew I was in trouble, that it was going to be payback time. I was told that they were never were going to talk about their involvement None of this was going to come out, the DNA stuff, none of it. And it ends up, he goes on a dub, dub top secret when I just told everybody, hey, listen, I got a settlement. Um, the lawyer loaded up as uh, you know, de facto that they admitted that UAPs are real because the event was labeled a UAP event by the by the old memo. And then that they gave me compensation for it. Well, Green goes on above top secret, writes two paragraphs on what it was, terahertz radiation, all these different things that went on. So and then I knew that there was more to this coming down the road. Then they work with Annie Jacobson. Who they She's a, a correspondent, war correspondent or writer or whatever. And they talk yeah. about the DNA, the DNA study, how this all plays together. So that's been down a whole different road, having to deal with them, to the stars, Lou Elizondo. I got taken down to Hal Putoff's um, facility, got briefed on uh, Stargate and a bunch of other stuff. So this has been ongoing, even on the side. And there's definitely interest by the government in people that have been had some kind of encounter with whatever a UAP is. So, do you think this this anomalous phenomena, whatever it may be, do you think that is what we people are seeing and have been seeing for, you know, well, as long as they've been reported, or do you think there may be multiple phenomena out there? Wow, that one's a tough one to answer. Okay, um, there is a phenomenon. Condine says there is. So that's been identified. The United, the British changed it to UAP. The Americans now call it a UAP. So that's clearly something going on that they're working with that involves plasmas, intelligence, and all that. So that's there. Um, then you have to look at Roswell, which I don't know much about other than they supposedly uncovered a craft. So if that's the case, then there's something else possibly going on too. But what I can tell you is there definitely is some kind of a phenomenon that they're aware of. They've been studying it for probably decades. It involves radiation frequencies, you know, intelligence, and they definitely have figured out how to start mo modulating it to use it in weapon systems, which are currently active and they're expanding on it, you know, going forward. So is there more than one thing going on? There's a good chance. But I don't know enough about the crafts and all that other stuff. And if you go into the phenomenon itself, it can throw, it can make you think you're seeing something you're not. It can it can it can mess with your memory, and and it can modulate radars. It can it can you know do all kinds of things, which we've explained in our book. That maybe a lot of what people seeing they thought were craft weren't necessarily craft. To include mm. what they talked about the indentations in the ground at Rendlesham. 
the phenomenon plasma can actually create those indentations in the ground. And the thing is, is that lights that they talk about halt probably, and I'm just going to barely just throw this out because we're going to expand on it down the road when, with all the facts, was there was a report of a satellite being brought down during our event that was going on. And that probably had something to do with some lasers and tracking plasmas that were either created from the phenomenon or we were able to do it. And if I've got a, a declassified top secret document that I've uncovered from the uh, British themselves, the MOD that admits they've been working on this back in the 50s or even 40s, but they they expanded on this with the Americans where that may have been involved with possibly bringing down that satellite that came down in the forest during our event on top of everything else that was going on. Mm, that's interesting as well. I mean, one thing that just came to mind then was there was a, obviously an incident at Lake and Heath Bentwaters in 56, and I just wonder if that somehow well, has a similar I'm connection. glad you brought that up. I'm glad you brought that up. Okay. The first time the incident in 56 happened at Bentwaters, shortly after that, they had an incident at Kirkland Air Force Base. It was a few months later where they had right. some stuff that went on down there. Fast forward to our event. Prior to our event in the spring of 80, they had a major event at um, Coyote Canyon at Kirkland. And then we had our event in December. So both times there was major events that ben, Bentwaters, there was major events down at uh, Kirkland Air Force Base where DOE's at, Department of Energy. Hmm. How convenient and coincidental. <laughs> and that, you can just look that up. People will try to say that's not true. Just look up the Bentwaters incident. Look at that there was an incident at Kirkland, the time frame, and then look up the fact that Coyote Canyon took place. And it was around a nuclear storage area. And stuff, yeah. bunch of stuff went on. And then down there where DOD works and all that stuff goes on. And then, boom, in December, we had our event. So both times they were there. And I think... And this is just speculation on mine because I can't get a full um, induction on the, the engineer that wrote the paper Condine. But I bet if you push the FOIA hard enough, because I can't do FOIAs with the British government anymore. They won't let me. Because when I got too close to some of the stuff, they uh, sanctioned me. That's what they called, and they're not going to answer my questions anymore. But I think... The guy that wrote the paper could have been one of the pilots who was involved in the 1956 incident because he was a pilot in the RAF during that time. He was a Navy pilot. It was Dr. Ron Haddo that wrote Condine. Right, but he may have been one of the pilots that was involved in the 56 incident. I'm just trying to think because I spoke to Dr. Clark who interviewed some of the pilots from the 56 incident and the names never came never came together. It never, there was no correlation there. But, and I think Haddo was in the Navy, and that was the Air Force that was based, that was involved with the 56 case. But I'd have to there, do some more but, digging just to Well, that, to I just wondered because of some of the mm. comments in the Condine report and stuff, different things. I just wondered if he may have not, or at the least he interviewed and talked to those pilots. Sure, yeah. Because you know, he was a pilot before he was in, or maybe he was an engineer at the same time. But yeah. he was definitely a pilot in the RAF, so. Absolutely. Now, listen, John, I want to get on to some viewer questions and that before. But just before that, is there anything that you feel like I may have missed on that's important? Well, have you covered story? your list? Have you covered your I list? I have, yeah, but I, I jumped around, so I could, could have missed something. because there's. I so mean, there's always notes. something I'll think of later, but let's take some questions and maybe I'll go into Yeah, I mean, something. one thing that a lot of people have been asking me about is your views on Jim Penniston's binary codes part of the story. And 
you know, if you're happy to talk about that, I'd love to hear about. Well, your I'll, I'll keep I'll keep it brief. Okay. Okay. Um, I worked with Penniston. Um, I I met him back in the early '90s. We did a, a a documentary from England called Strange but True. Okay. And when we did that, there was no notebook at all. No mention of a notebook, no nothing. Now, he tried to come back when I brought that up and say, well, I had it, but they didn't want to look at it back then. I said, wait a minute. I was there for all the production meetings. You never brought up the notebook. You never brought it up to them, nor did you bring it up to Halder or I, because we all had breakfast together, lunch, everything all the time, because we were filming the whole time we were over there. So no mention at all. Now, he was already out of the military. So his excuse before was he didn't talk about it because he was in the military. He was he was, he was was retired. He talked about the incident, never brought the notebook up. First time I found out about the notebook was the 20-year anniversary when he did that documentary with Brian Gumble. I forget what it was called, but he, they did a, him and Halt did a document. It was a 20-year anniversary document that him and Halt were involved. He introduced the notebook, but the notebook had the wrong date in it. So in other words, the night he said it happened, it said the 26th. You know, or 27th, I think it was the 8th. I'd have to go back and look at the pages now. It wasn't the 26th. It was the 27th, 28th, which was highlighted by some skeptics. So, well, why would you have the wrong date in when statements and British logs show it was the 26th? Well, one of the speculations was he just wrote the notebook later because he took it off the halt, the halt memo, which had, I believe, the 27th in it. So that yeah. was the first time I saw the, the notebook. And nor did I ever see him walk around it or anything else. He tried to take Kabansak out of the story, but later, like a year ago, maybe less, he interviewed with Jimmy Church. Church kind of caught him off guard. He said, so when you got to the berm and you came over, what did you guys do? And he identified both Ed and I being together with him when we came up on it. Before, he'd always said Ed wasn't even there. So he slipped up with a question. So the three of us were together. The notebook shows up at the 20-year mark with the glyphs, who later some people did some research and found the glyphs on some equipment that the German company sells that does underground detection work. Okay. Now, nothing about the binary or anything else until the was it the 30th anniversary or was it 2010? So that would have been what a 30th anniversary. Yeah. That all pops in when we're in Phoenix filming for ancient aliens, which by the way, was Panetheus, which fit perfectly in it. He claims that he didn't really want it out, but why did he? Because everybody that handled the notebook prior to this, which I never had, said they'd looked at the notebook and never saw binary in it. Well, his excuse was, well, I'd always kept it out, right? Well, okay, so fair enough. But why did he put it in for ancient aliens? Hmm. Okay, why did he put it in there knowing we were going to handle the notebook and look at it? When every other time he didn't want people to see it, including James Fox, who he did a bunch of work with, and they actually yeah. studied the glyphs, right? So then, bam, all of a sudden they see the binary, and then they want to talk about it. Well, he claims that he didn't want to, and that he didn't right away. Well, no, if you look at the hour piece they did, he immediately went back in and talked about it openly on his own accord. No one forced him. So he talked about all this. He gave them some of the pages, but he never could get the pages straight at first, whether it was 12, 15, 16, or whatever. So they looked at some of the pages. They identified an area off of the coast of Ireland, and but that was only because they put the decimal point in a certain place. All that's like starts to get strange. Then he turns around, and they did some more research on it. Some people did, and they found out these all these codes 
were all on an ancient site that was available three years before he introduced the codes in the first place. So there is a quite a bit of controversy behind the codes. This is all factual. I'm not making it up. Their excuse was the site had been hacked um, to modify it to make him look bad. We'll produce the evidence then. Do you know what I mean? It's just like he's gone on now and says you can't draw a pension, Air Force pension, and VA disability. It's double dipping. You can't. You can't draw both. I'm doing both. He's doing both because he openly said in the hearing that he did with when we did with Bassett, he said he was drawing VA disability. So you can, but then he wants to imply to people like Adrian Bistens and I, which, oh, that was the one thing I didn't talk to you about. Adrian's getting 100% or 95% or whatever compensation for injuries at Rendell's from also. I was able to help him with documentation, get the compensation. He was the one who had a close interaction, which people say, well, wait a minute. Why did Penniston not get injured like you two? Well, in the hearings, he said he had art issues. Okay, but Adrian and I were clearly had issues from this when we got close to whatever it was. And if he wants to now say he didn't have any injuries from it, why didn't he get it if we did and the VA recognized it and so does the government, and yet he claims he touched it and walked around it? Sure. So leave it for yourself, folks, whatever you want to believe. But if you really want to do some digging, there's a lot. All that I just talked about is out there for public consumption. Yeah, no, I appreciate you t- you talking about that because uh, yeah, I probably would have got crucified for not, not and, asking And it. to be honest with you, I don't believe – Here's what, how I feel about it, because he did do a hypnosis at one point, and he did kind of come under hypnosis, talk a little bit about some of that. So I'm not saying something didn't happen to him, and some people have speculated the government planted it in him, or or maybe he had felt something, and then he just tried to take advantage of it by the, making the notebook, because he did get compensated each time they used the notebook in these documentaries. But all I'm getting at is it's not cut and dry. How's that? Sure. I want to leave it at that. Do that's some research enough. before you accept everything that you've been told. Yeah, that's always a good rule. Absolutely. Um, I got a question here from Richard. He says, Sedona has apparently been a UFO hotspot for decades. Uh, and Jim Penniston's alleged binary code message contains location coordinates for Sedona. Plus, you've even lived there yourself, John. Do you think or know if there is something special about Sedona? Linda, Martin, Howe, Linda Martin Howard said that she was contacted in the early 80s by an engineer from Martin Marietta who claims that he was involved in constructing a windowless building around a device in Sedona that was there to prevent magnetic fields from collapsing. Okay, well, let's let's leave the Linda part out. And when I'm okay. saying that, I that's the first I've heard of that. But what I oh, okay. tell, what I, about that part? I've never heard about that. There is there is or was a facility up in Sedona. And I'll tell you why. There was a facility out in the desert right outside of town called Maricopa. And they identified it as a NORAD site. Okay. But it was there. And the cover story for was it involved the shuttle, but it stayed active many years afterwards when the shuttle program shut down. Okay. I know about this because I lived in Maricopa and I drove by it all the time. It had microwave antennas behind it. You could see it on the satellite. If you looked at the satellite of it, but when I was at Williams, they had the site security manager was responsible for that facility. So it was under the air force. When I was at Luke, the Sedona facility was under Luke's um, purview for security up there. 
So there was a facility somewhere up in the Sedona out in the forest area. And when Williams closed, Luke took over the Maricopa site. Exactly what they were doing, I don't know, other than I did find a link one time that said both the, Mar the uh, Maricopa site and the Sedona site were tied into microwaves that monitored the low frequencies of the Earth. Right. That was they, they identified those two sites plus a bunch of other sites around the world. Does that have anything to do with UFOs and stuff? I don't know. But they were real. And they were being utilized, and the Air Force was involved in the security of it. Okay, now, I lived there for two years. Bradshaw Ranch, I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's like yeah. Skinwalker. The government yeah, yeah. took it over, the whole thing. I had a weird, strange encounter on more than one occasion when I went out there two or three different times. I think it was three, where I went out there with some people where we actually, one night, we had the EMA meter peg. We had uh, the it get like 10 degrees colder and we had weird lights in the sky all over the place. And then a couple mm -hmm. other times we had some stuff. I can't think of the name of the town. It's above Cottonwood. You cut between Cottonwood and Prescott. There's a mountain up there. I can't remember what it's called. And from that side in Bradshaw, we could see stuff flying around in the sky up there where people had seen stuff before. So personally, I could tell you, there's all kinds of forklift there. There's a there's a uh, parcel portal. You, there's also something else that's interesting, which most people aren't aware of. Buddha put a time trap. They're only they have a site there that's dedicated to time travel, and it's right wow. there in Sedona on the west side of town. And and they have these different. I I can't remember. It's a stupa. They have a stupa that's dedicated to time travel right out there by Bradshaw Ranch. Hmm. That's active. And they actually have a medicine wheel they built out there, too. So is Sedona weird? Yes. Is there strange <laughs> things that I've seen there? Yes. Have other people said seen things there? Yes. What exactly is it? I don't know. Are there Were there at least there was at one point facility out there? Yes. Was it what Linda Moulton Howe, that guy brought up? I don't know. That part I really don't know. I've never heard that before. That was one that kind of caught me off guard. So. No, no, I appreciate your answer. That was the first time. Uh, I'd heard that as well. But well, yeah, listen, if, you me... want to, if you want to get a weird experience, go to Sedona. Yeah. You're probably yeah. going to see something strange. You know, if you if you go out there by the Bradshaw Ranch area, there's an area out there that's very bizarre. I can't deny that. So, Excellent. I'll, I'll keep that in mind if I'm ever out that way. Uh, but listen, John, we've just hit over the hour mark. Before I go, I just want to give a couple of thank yous. Uh, this one here, actually, John, if you wouldn't mind. Davey says, can you give my daughter Rudy a shout out? She is reading everything she can on Rendlesham. So I have to say, hey, Rudy, thanks. Make there sure you, you read the weaponization book. There's a lot of stuff in there that'll open your eyes to what we were dealing with. There you go. Shout out, Davey. Good friend of mine. And uh, okay. yeah, you got a good daughter there. And finally, Jimmy says, thanks, Vinny. One day I'll have a question. Well, Jimmy... That's okay. I'll always be here when you're ready. Thank you for the $5 donation. All right, then. There we go, guys. Thank you so much, John. That was a, a brilliant interview. And, uh, yeah, I can't thank you enough. So, yeah. Oh, thanks. and one last thing. Is there more to come sure. with Rendlesham? I can almost guarantee you there'll be more things coming out. Um, in fact, we're going to expand on the satellite stuff next year, more stuff that we've uncovered and and are working on then. And please though, one thing folks, don't just because people may start supporting the, the weapon technology that was being worked on out there, 
and the satellite could have been brought down, which we're going to try to go into deeper. There's still something else out there too. Yeah. And if you, unfortunately, Andrew Pike's book got pulled and it's hard to find, but he laid out a lot of stuff they were studying out there that ties into this. And there's a lot more to it than just a, a, a satellite that could have been brought down, you know, and everything else and weapon technology being worked on. There is a phenomenon out there. And people to this day still see strange things floating around in the forest out there. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And listen, Thanks everyone that's thank you. And everyone watching, thank you so much for the great questions. Keeping the chat cordial. I'll be back next week. For now, guys, take care and we'll see you soon. Bye bye.